Hello and welcome back to the Let's Talk Palestine podcast. Today we have a really, really special episode as we get to welcome Dr. Ilan Pape. We're going to go through some of the historical details that we touched on last episode in a bit more depth. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Pape is one of the most notable Israeli historians for his research into what are really the the uncomfortable truths regarding the foundation of the Israeli state. He's written many books that I can't recommend enough, especially books such as On Palestine and The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. And so now we're going to begin to go through some of the questions that you may still have after last episode. So, Dr. Pape, it's an honor to have you here on the podcast. Can you begin by explaining to our listeners again the, the real fundamentals of Zionism, such as which factors led to its formation, but maybe also whether or, or how it has evolved over its history? Mm-hmm. Yes, well, Zionism started uh, as a response to two impulses, I would say. The first the impulse was of uh, uh, Jews in uh, Central Europe and Eastern Europe uh, to look for uh, a panacea and an, an antidote to the ever green problem of anti-Semitism. So Zionism was one, by no means the only, uh, Jewish response to the fact that anti-Semitism seemed to be a phenomenon that does not disappear. The second impulse was uh, not only typical to Jews who lived in Central and Eastern Europe, but also to many other ethnic and cultural groups uh, that were intoxicated by the new idea of nationalism. And uh, therefore, uh, some Jewish intellectual and activists hoped to uh, redefine Judaism uh, as, a, as a national movement rather than as a religion. Uh, there was a third uh, uh, impulse or factor that um, created Zionism, and this was Christian Zionism. Christian Zionism predated uh, Jewish Zionism. Long before Jews were thinking about the idea that the Jews are a nation and that Palestine is their homeland, this notion was already developed uh, since the 17th century by evangelical uh, Christianity that saw the return of the Jews to, to Palestine as part of a divine scheme that would lead in the end of the day to the resurrection of the death, the, uh, the uh, return of the uh, Messiah, uh, and the end of time. Uh, so uh, you have these kind of uh, factors creating this idea that, A, the Jews are a nation and not a religion, and secondly, that the homeland uh, in which this nation can thrive is the ancient homeland, so to speak, uh, of Palestine. And so the act of return uh, was the first step to create this nation state, whether people regarded it religiously or from a secular point of view. Very uh, quickly uh, in the late 19th century, when all these impulses converged, uh, Zionism became became a settler colonial movement, very much like the movement of Europeans who colonized uh, North America, Australia, and other places on the globe. Namely, once the idea was that a certain piece of land is the new homeland for whatever reason, doesn't matter really. Uh, and the old homelands are not either safe or are not anymore your homelands. Uh, the only problem remaining was that usually places coveted were inhabited by another people, as was the case in Palestine. And as the late Patrick Wolf taught us in that particular moment, uh, the logic of the elimination of the natives being activated and therefore Zionism, apart from seeking a solution for anti-Semitism or becoming a religious Jewish and Christian program for the future, was also a program of dispossession, of uh, displacement and, and replacement from very early on when the first ever Zionist settlers arrived in Palestine in the late 19th century. You also ask what it is today. Well, in as always happens, these things are dynamic and they don't stay uh, as they are. So today, I think it would be a fair description to say that Zionism is a state ideology, a regime ideology, based, of course, of that historical foundation we were talking about. Uh, it's a very clear ideology of preference, of prejudice, uh, of, um, uh, of apartheid uh, and racism in many, many ways. 
uh, uh, because it gives exclusivity to people because of who they are, not of course what they do or who they belong to. And it discriminates institutionally and uh, uh, in, any, in many other ways, uh, those who are not regarded a part of, of, of the nation. Uh, the process is incremental, it doesn't happen in one day. It starts as a de facto process, but since 2010, and definitely in the last three or four years, uh, this uh, informal uh, ideology became a formal ideology through legislation mainly. And, and therefore today, I think it would be quite fair to compare a Zionist as an, an ideology to apartheid as an ideology during the heyday of apartheid in uh, South Africa. As you've just mentioned, Zionism has taken a few different forms throughout its history, especially when we consider the history of Israeli society, which is, of course, I mean, primarily a Zionist society, but maybe that's a bit superficial or not a nuanced way of looking at it, as it's not that homogeneous, as there's many different types of Zionism. Maybe most relevant for our listeners, as it's maybe the, the most recent and the most sort of powerful type of Zionism, You've written about neo-Zionism in some of your books. Can you explain this term further? Neo-Zionism is quite a common, uh, any neo kind of nationalism, uh, is quite a common phenomenon in places where uh, nationalism or any kind of fundamental ideology is questioned. Uh, if, if this challenge is not working well, like communism challenging uh, nationalism in Eastern Europe, you know, when it doesn't work, and it fails, usually it is replaced by even a harsher version of that nationalism. You can see it in, in Hungary, uh, uh, in Serbia, uh, in Poland, definitely in Russia. Uh, and I think similar thing happened in, in Israel. This journey to try and see maybe there's something wrong with Zionism ended with a more popular version of Zionism, which, which was even harsher than what I call classical uh, Zionism. And when we say harsher, it usually means uh, harsher towards the Palestinians. Although, as we can see from the last election in Israel, it also means harsher towards secular Jews in Tel Aviv and, and people who live there. So there's, there's another feature uh, to neo-Zionism that probably we underestimated at the time. But the most important one is, of course, the fact that they are willing to dispense with any democratic or any moral inhibitions uh, in their policies towards the Palestinians compared maybe to the more classical Zionist uh, uh, movement, who, who did, of course, committed quite a lot of crimes against the Palestinians, especially the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 48 was committed by the left in Israel, not by the right wing. Uh, but um, nonetheless, it was a, a, an attempt to, to, to hide it. Maybe there was even some sort of guilt, I don't know, and so on. But so the new version is is... Uh, an advocacy for uh, a brutal policy towards the Palestinian without any moral inhibition. But as I say, because it also has a very religious uh, element to it, it also is quite harsh in its attitude and perception of Jews who are not religious, or uh, let's say the, the uh, LGBT community in Israel, uh, women. And I'm talking about the Jewish society, not just the Palestinian. So neo-Zionism is this kind of probably uh, has a cousin in America in Trumpism and the new right. Uh, but we have to be careful with these comparisons because they're different in places. But there are, there, are, there are common features and not surprisingly, there's a strong alliance between the neo-Zionist groups, uh, government that is now in Israel with the fascists in, in Italy, the fascists in France and in, in Sweden. Uh, it's not... There is an affinity, of course, that that. Uh, so I think that's what we 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 call neo-Zionism. I don't think anybody talks about just to finish that uh, idea. I don't think anybody talks about post-Zionism today. It's like nobody talks about liberal Zionism today or left Zionism. There is a small group of anti-Zionist Jews in Israel. They're not post-Zionist. They are clearly anti-Zionist. They're very small, they're not big, but they exist. Should be acknowledged. And the rest of the Israeli Jews are Zionists. I really like that parallel you just gave with some of the other political movements around the world, as you said, Trumpism. But how, if, if we go back now to sort of the inception of Zionism again, 
how would you say that the entire movement was received at the time, sort of at the end of the 19th century? Are we right in thinking that Jewish people weren't really that keen on the ideology? Yes. Well, to begin with, yes, Zionism as, as a solution to, to anti-Semitism was a minority opinion. Uh, most of the religious Orthodox Jews believe that you cannot uh, temper with God's will and settling in Palestine uh, uh, was uh, really uh, premature and, and did not uh, tally with their idea of what it means to be a religious Jew. Liberal Jews and communist Jews and socialist Jews also opposed Zionism because they believed that the solution for anti-Semitism was either a more democratic society or a more socialist society or a more communist society. So to begin with, uh, Zionism had a problem of um, recruiting quite a lot of people. And the numbers of uh, Jewish settlers in, in, in Palestine, I would say up to the 1930s, was not very, very high. Uh, and definitely was unable by itself to uh, build a, a Jewish state there. A few things changed the, the balance of power, if you want, between Zionism and the rest of the Jewish ideas of the solution. And also, I think, eventually impacted the balance of power on the ground vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Palestinians. Uh, one, of course, was the, um, the Holocaust. Probably not one. Probably the most important one in many ways was the Holocaust for, for several reasons. Uh, one was that uh, Zionism's kind of ultimate message that Jews cannot be in Europe there's no way of solving anti-Semitism in Europe, seemed to be more valid uh, after the Holocaust, although I think it was not right, but doesn't matter. But, but that was, not surprisingly, it began to, to resonate with people that they had a point. Uh, secondly, and more importantly, I think, after the Holocaust, instead of dealing with what the Holocaust meant, European leaders and leaderships uh, were very happy to endorse Zionism as their response to the Holocaust, rather than dealing with the way not only Germany, but many other European societies behaved during the Holocaust. Instead of dealing with the racism that was the main problem in Europe, and still is the main problem in Europe towards non-Europeans or, Europe, or immigrants, uh, it was much easier to say, okay, we don't, you know, Germany can immediately be readmitted to the community of civil nations, civil, civilized nations, because even, even the Zionists are willing to acknowledge that there is a new Germany, provided that the quid pro quo would be an absolute uh, carte blanche support for the Zionist project in Palestine. So I think that, that played a very important role in, in showing that Zionism was not only a valid solution to anti-Semitism, that actually uh, it, unlike, unlike the situation before the Second World War, after the Second World War, it enjoyed uh, a, a wide support from all the Western governments, uh, including the, the, the United States. And I think that played a very important role. Although one should say Zionism was not that successful in convincing the people who survived the Holocaust in Europe to come to Palestine. Most of them went to America and Britain, but that didn't matter. The, the sense was that they are the winning ideology among, Jude, among Jews. And even if the numbers do not testify to that image, but that was the image. And I think the, the, what helped eventually, but that would take a bit of time, that the Zionist leaders understood very uh, uh, early on that um, because of the Holocaust, they would be immune from any serious condemnation, even if they commit an ethnic cleansing or, or execute an ethnic cleansing operation as they did in 1948. And, and very soon after the ethnic cleansing operation, they read correctly the new map of the world, the Cold War map, that actually kind of erupted in 1948 and aligned themselves very strongly with the West offering not just to be a, a solution for anti-Semitism, but to be a, an important bastion for Western imperialism uh, within the Arab world. As you know, and as you probably know, the Arab world in the late 40s and the 1950s 
began to develop its own national identity, uh, national liberation movements. Many of them leaned towards the left. Uh, many of them uh, regarded uh, Britain and France as, as the enemy, so to speak. And it's not surprising that one of the first acts of the, of the new Jewish state was to collude with Britain and France in the attempt to topple Nasser uh, in 1956. So I think um, uh, uh, from a minority uh, uh, position, they became a majority position through uh, a, a set of alliances with certain uh, powers and forces in the world uh, and uh, also uh, commodified themselves not necessarily as, as a moral solution, but definitely as, a, as, a, as kind of an asset to a world, especially in a world during the Cold War that was looking for allies. And as you know, the Americans had very little concern for the moral validity of their allies during the 50s and the 60s. You could be a ruthless dictator, but if you were a pro-American dictator, you were our men. Uh, and, and I think Israel fitted very well into this new constellation of, of forces uh, uh, in the world. So by now we've kind of established that Israel or Zionism was very much a settler colonial movement. When we look at Palestine now from a European colonial lens, there are three key agreements that's placed, the McMahon-Hussein correspondence, the Sykes-Picot agreement, and the Balfour Declaration. Can we go through these and can you begin to describe how these impacted not only Palestine, but also maybe even the wider region? Well, chronologically, uh, Hussein McMahon uh, correspondence came before the Balfour Declaration. So let's start uh, with Hussein McMahon. Uh, at first, this um, correspondence between... Uh, the Sharif Hussein of Mecca and the uh, British governor general uh, in, in Egypt, McMahon, uh, did not necessarily relate to Palestine directly, but has had a lot of impact on uh, the Eastern Mediterranean uh, as a whole. The idea was that a certain alliance between Britain and the Hashemites, who were still in those days confined to the Hejaz, uh, would create an alliance that would be a win-win uh, agreement to both sides. Britain would uh, have the endorsement of a very important religious figure in the Muslim world on the one hand, and the Hashemites would be able to expand the rule beyond the Hejaz into areas that at that time were still part of the Ottoman or Turkish uh, Empire. The problem was that uh, this was not the only uh, involvement in uh, shaping the post-First World War map. Uh, no less important, maybe even more important, was the agreement be uh, between France and Britain uh, that uh, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean would be divided between these two colonial empires uh, with all kinds of uh, innuendos. I don't want to go into it. But the end of the day, what we had was a, a set of new nation states that were not there before, some of them corresponding to the Ottoman provinces of the past. Most of them did not. Uh, and uh, the nation states were supposed to be the allies of the West, especially of Britain and France in the future. So it was not supposed to be full independence or real sovereignty. But liberation movement in those places did eventually get rid of the British and the French and created the Arab nation state as we know them. But they were created with certain injustices, there were certain uh, ethnic groups, cultural groups, uh, religious groups, and we are kind of still dealing with these injustices uh, 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 today, nor did the British or the French encourage democratic regimes to appear then. In fact, whenever there was a chance for a democracy, either in Syria or in Lebanon or Egypt, or even in Iraq, uh, uh, in, during the Cold War, Britain and France, very much like the United States, didn't care about the democratic development. What they care about was that they would not join uh, the, the other bloc, the Eastern bloc, and, and even an, a, a, a non-alignment position, which most of the Arab states had, was unacceptable uh, to, to, to the West. So I think this is one, one history that includes, <clears throat> of course, Palestine. Palestine is one of the cases where uh, this kind of division did not include and respect 
the interest of, of a national group that was growing there has happened to some other national groups within the Arab world. But I think more important for the case of Palestine is not so much the Sykes-Picot agreement. <clears throat> it's indeed the Balfour Declaration, but the Balfour Declaration is the, the end of a process, not the beginning of the process. And the process that we have to realize that begins uh, is around 1915. In fact, even before the uh, Sykes-Picot agreement is, is signed. During the first months of 1915, uh, the Zionist lobby that was made of Christian and Jewish groups in Britain became quite powerful, even already in 1915, and began to influence British strategy towards uh, Palestine. It could not affect British policy towards Syria or Lebanon, but it did, it did focus on changing British perception of what should be done with Palestine if the Ottoman Empire would be defeated in the First World War. And they had two missions. One, the first mission was already achieved in 1915, and that was to convince Britain that Palestine should be British and not French and not international. Um, the second mission was a bit more difficult, that it should not only be British, it would also be Zionist. Uh, and that took another two years of lobbying, very strong lobbying, uh, and very effective lobbying, as we know. And the Balfour Declaration actually is, is the addition to, it's kind of changing the British decision that Palestine should be uh, uh, British, for example, something T. Lawrence agreed to, but did not agree to the fact that if it's British, it should be Zionist. Uh, and quite a lot of Palestinians, including the Hosseini family, uh, in 1915 were willing to go along with the British, some of them, if it was to be a British Palestine instead of Ottoman Palestine. But of course, did not realize that being British meant also being Zionist. Now, the letter that uh, Lord Balfour as a foreign secretary uh, sent to Lord Rothschild, the informal uh, head of the Anglo-Jewish community by itself was not that important. What was important that after the uh, international agreements were finalized between the victorious uh, parties to the First World War and the mandate system was established, Britain included, incorporated, the Balfour Declaration in the Mandate Charter for Palestine. That's why the letter, the letter itself was not important. What was important, it became part of the Charter uh, for, for Palestine. I think when, when Balfour wrote the, the letter, uh, he, he wrote it quite uh, without kind of a focused attention. The moment the letter became part of the Charter, a few years later, it meant that there was now a commitment by Britain to make Palestine a Zionist Palestine and not just a, a British Palestine. I'd just like to expand a bit on that point you gave just now to do with lobbying by the Zionist movement. What was actually in it for the West, specifically Britain, of course, what was in it for them? What would they gain by being Zionists? And how did they how, how did the Zionist movement convince the British to adopt Zionism in their colonial charter? Well, the power of lobbying is that you're not always uh, doing, uh, you are, you, the ones you are lobbying, the people you are lobbying, or the state you are lobbying, or the institution that, uh, that you lobby, uh, are not necessarily getting something in return, but they are convinced that they are getting something in return. I would say in the end of the day, I don't think uh, it, it benefited Britain to be pro-Zionist. Uh, the fiasco with Israel in, in Suez was, was a failure. Uh, Britain lost a lot of friends in the Arab world because of its support for Israel. Uh, the oil embargo in 73 hit Britain. It's very difficult to see why uh, this close alliance between Britain and Israel benefited Britain. Uh, I think also some American taxpayers would ask whether really uh, uh, helping Israel is beneficial for the United States. It creates, uh, I mean, there are stupid Americans who say, why do they hate us? Uh, but, um, but the reason America is not favored in the Arab world has a lot to do with its close alliance uh, with Israel. And that certainly is not an advantage for the United States. Uh, nor is the, 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 you know, the kind of the way the, the, the rest of the world views America, uh, partly because of its position, Israel is beneficial to, to the United States. 
you have to have a very narrow interpretation of the American national interest and the willingness to waste American taxpayers' money to say that it's it's a win-win situation. But the power of a lobby is, uh, as you know, first of all, is to convince you that even if it's not true, that it's good for you. And the second thing that is quite impressive, one should say, about the lobby, especially in the United States, to lesser, lesser extent in Britain uh, and other countries, but even there it's true, that the founding, if you want, the founders of the, of the lobby in America understood that uh, you cannot invent the wheel every time from the beginning. You have to create a good lobby uh, uh, creates the foundation with moral justification, a lot of resources and so on, but it operates well if there is an inertia. We can see today in America, the lobby does not have to intimidate a member of the House of Representatives to support uh, legislation favoring Israel. The member of, of the House already knows it's, it's beneficial for him or for her politically to support Israel. They don't even need to go to the lobby. They, they absolutely know what would be the price if they will go against the, against the lobby. And this system was already built in America in the very beginning of the 20th century. And, and, and only in the, in the second half of the 20th century, it was already working on inertia rather than investment. Um, and, uh, and therefore it's, it's, uh, it's a powerful uh, uh, tool that, uh, first of all, secures alliances to Israel, not of the civil society, as we can see. The lobby is very weak in influencing societies, but it's very efficient in influencing political elites and governments. And it also is working very hard to suppress any counter arguments. Uh, it cannot win the moral debate with the Palestinians, but it can kill the debate with the Palestinians. And that's what it has been doing for many, many years. So, so um, yeah, th th I think that's, that's uh, something to, to analyze, something we should analyze well, especially for those of ones who want, those of us who want to, to confront it and challenge it and, and mitigate its, its influence on uh, the world's and especially the Western policy uh, on Palestine. So if we move along the timeline now and move more into the mandatory period, what was life like for Palestinians? There are harrowing accounts of what the British would do to dissenting Palestinians, but how did general day-to-day -day life look like for the people of Palestine during uh, or living under British colonial rule? Well, I, I think uh, actually life was not that bad until uh, the, uh, the mid-1930s. Uh, and uh, even after the, the Second World War, I mean, it's, uh, Palestine was uh, in a way ha handled in two different ways by the British. As far as the Palestinians were concerned, it was handled as a colony. And when you are under a, a colonial rule, uh, Sometimes, you know, you, you have some uh, ability to, to use even the colonial power to improve uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, job opportunities, maybe even get some help with modernization of agriculture, uh, hygiene, and so on. So, so modernization in the more positive side of it was, was also it was one aspect of, uh, of British rule not only in Palestine, also in, in other parts. The problem began when you, you uh, uh, identified yourself as, as an indigenous native national movement, and you faced, then you faced the wrath and the power of the empire. And they were British were very brutal, as were the French, uh, in uh, trying to suppress any attempt to uh, challenge their right to rule uh, Palestine. And this came to, to a peak in 1936 to 1939 during the three years of the Arab revolt. And uh, the British used horrific, horrific, brutal methods to suppress the, the, the rebellion uh, in human 
actually today most of these actions would be regarded immediately as war crimes. And that repertoire in many ways was adopted later by the Israelis after they occupied the West Bank uh, and, and the Gaza uh, Strip and also during uh, the Nakba. So uh, uh, it's not a monolithic experience. There are periods which are better, periods which are worse. Uh, it's interesting that under the British rule, uh, communities, uh, especially in the rural areas, but also in urban areas, uh, lived quite, coexisted quite peacefully. Uh, in fact, the phenomenon that we see today in Palestine of villages that in which only one religious group lived was not something common in the mandatory period. Most villages where uh, people lived from all religions in it, uh, definitely the cities were mixed uh, and uh, Jews, Muslims and Christians lived uh, uh, together. Um, but of course, the Zionization of the Jewish community uh, uh, created uh, the beginning of, of campaigns such as Hebrew labor that meant to uh, push away the Palestinians from the labor market, uh, market and the, the purchase of land and the dispossession of Palestinian tenants from the land uh, undermined uh, what was in the late Ottoman Empire quite a normal existence. Uh, of coexistence between the various uh, communities that made the community, the population of society in, in Palestine. I should also say that after the Second World, and this is one of the tragedies of the Nakba, many of the villages that suffered during the Arab revolt or during difficult economic uh, periods began to thrive. Uh, from 40s, especially during 1946, we see the building of new schools, of the introduction of uh, electricity and water systems into the rural Palestine, a settling of old feuds. Uh, definitely something very positive happened, uh, both in the city and in, and in the village in, in Palestine. And this was really uh, killed in its bud because uh, two years later, all these places were uh, affected by the Nakba, the, the Israeli uh, operation of ethnic uh, cleansing. Um, but, you know, individually, if you read biographies of Palestinians, 36 to 39 is singled out as a terrible period. But there was a sense after 39 that, you know, life can return to normal for those who were not killed, wounded or arrested, of course. And then I don't think anyone anticipated the magnitude of the, of the catastrophe that awaited them just uh, less than a decade uh, later. Those are actually some really interesting points. But my next question would then be how, if, if, if the Palestinians weren't really sort of living too badly under the British, surely there was, or how did Palestinians resist Zionism? Then, in that case, as it was slowly building up over the over the time period, so the first Palestinian kind of resistance began in 1918, when for the first time Palestinian learned about the Balfour Declaration, uh, and uh, uh, the main organization was called the Christian Muslim Societies, that were formed the nucleus for for the later Palestinian National Movement, and and they created. Um, a kind of a pan-Palestinian movement that uh, at first some of them hoped that uh, uh, the Amir Faisal, uh, who was uh, king of Syria for two years between 1918 to 1920, would be able to create an old Syria kind of kingdom that would include Palestine. When he was toppled by the French in 1920, uh, uh, the uh, demand was very clear for an uh, Arab-Palestinian uh, state all over what we would call today historical uh, Palestine. I think only in the, 19, the late 1920s, the Palestinians resorted to what uh, other liberation movements would resort to, which is the armed struggle. I think up to the, nine, the, the late 1920s, most of the uh, uh, methods were petitions, uh, political conventions, there were quite a few political parties, there was an annual Palestinian National Conference every year, uh, and there was appeal to the international community, to the Arab world, 
probably what we would call today popular nonviolent uh, resistance. Uh, but the, the Zionist project became more and more violent. And, and I think the response came first in 1929 in what the Palestinians called Thawrat al-Burak, uh, because it was triggered by a, a dispute uh, around Haram al-Sharif uh, that included the rest of Palestine. This was, I think, the first Palestinian uh, rebellion. Then came, of course, the big rebellion, 1936 to 1939. The British were very cruel and they killed most of the military uh, uh, commanders of the Palestinian revolution. And that's why in 1948, the Palestinians were out, were without people who knew how to conduct a military armed struggle. Uh, uh, because of what happened in 36 to 39. So I think Palestinian resistance did not end, did not stop for one day. There were Palestinian newspapers, there were conventions, there were pan-Arab, pan-Islamic convention and constant dialogue with the international community. There was a bit of naivete on the Palestinian side because they knew that actually according to the new rules that the world, the Western world set, they were the majority who demanded self-determination. There was no reason the world should not support them. And I think they really believed it was a matter of just time and the world would understand uh, that they are wrong, that they were wronged, and that the only uh, justified solution for Palestine would be a Palestinian state, as that was the solution for Iraq, Syria, and Egypt. Uh, uh, and I think it took time for them to understand it. And it began after the Second World War that they need something much more forceful to help them. And that's when they start to appeal to the Arab world, and which was not that receptive in terms of governmental help, although the societies were responding well to that Palestinian quest for help. But the regimes themselves were much more economical uh, in what they were willing, willing to, help, uh, to, to give to the Palestinians. And uh, the result, as we know, came in 1948. So you've already spoken a bit about how the British treated Palestinians specifically during the mandatory period, but how did they treat Zionist settlers at the same time? Was it very different? Yes, definitely. As I said, I mean, the Palestinians were treated like members of a colony. Uh, the Zionists were treated in a very different way. They, they were, in a way, they were treated as the white settlers in Australia and America were treated once Britain understood that it was not able to totally control uh, the areas themselves. So uh, they allowed them to, which they didn't allow the Palestinians, they allowed the Zionists to build a state within a state during the mandatory system. So they had their own army, <clears throat> their own educational system, uh, health system, uh, own institutions. Uh, for several reasons. One was that they were white, so to speak. So they were not, you know, they were not Arabs. Uh, and um, so it was a kind of preferential treatment to European people under our tutelage, uh, under our control. Um, and secondly, uh, some British officials were very loyal to the Balfour Declaration and therefore thought that this was their role to enable the Jews to build the infrastructure for a state. Um, there were moments where there was a strong clash between Zionism and uh, the British mandate, as you know. Uh, first of all, because there was few terrorist groups among the Jewish community, like the Irgun and uh, the, the Stern Gang, who believed that they should try and forced the British out of Palestine. So that definitely uh, led to military clash. And after the Second World War, the Zionist strategy was that Zionism was already ready to take over Palestine and the British were regarded as a hurdle, uh, which they were not. Until 45, they were regarded as an asset. After 45, they were regarded as an impediment for implementing the Zionist uh, uh, project. But definitely there was a, a huge difference. I can give you one <clears throat> important example. Uh, the Zionists were allowed to open up two universities very early on. The Palestinians pleased please to um, open a university were rejected until the end of the mandate. Uh, 
uh, but that's just one of many examples of the difference the two communities were treated by the British. So as we all know, what came after the mandatory period was the Nakba, the, the Palestinian catastrophe. How did this kind of materialize from, from where you just kind of ended the last question with during the mandatory period? How, how did it come about? First of all, as I said, after 1945, the Zionist leadership believed it had the power to move on. Uh, and like any other settler colonial movement to try and implement the most important objective, which was to take the land without the people or to have as much of the land, of the new land, with, with as few of the old people in it, so to speak. Uh, but for that, they needed to see the British out of Palestine. They were not the only reason Britain decided to leave Palestine, but they contributed to the British decision to leave Palestine. What really mattered was that Britain was quite uh, affected by the Second World War and could not hold to an empire, uh, either in Palestine or in India, it didn't matter. Uh, and particular, the particular difficult winter of 47 to 48 uh, convinced the British policymakers that Palestine was not an asset anymore. And that created this historical opportunity for the Zionists to, um, to try and uh, move, step the, the efforts of taking over Palestine without the Palestinians. They had two issues that they had to deal with. One was the question, would the international community allow them to do that? Uh, and they found a very interesting uh, kind of strategy there. They offered to share, not to share so much as to partition the land between themselves and the Palestinians. This was a Zionist idea. It was not a United Nations idea. It's a United Nations idea that adopted a certain Zionist uh, tactics, which, which was not genuine. It was not genuine, but um, was I think the Zionist diplomats understood that they had to appear at least as willing to to share the land in one way or another, but they didn't mean to do it. We know now that uh, for sure. But it worked well. I mean, it allowed the United Nations decided to recognize internationally the right of the Jews to have at least part of Palestine as a Jewish state, provided they would allow an Arab state uh, on the other side. And the fact that the Palestinians, for obvious reasons, uh, rejected this idea, as did the Arab neighboring states, meant that the Zionists won kind of diplomatically this battle by saying, you see, we are willing to, to compromise and, and, and they reject. And therefore, in a way, they succeeded in shutting down the diplomacy uh, as being a factor uh, uh, in preventing them from implementing their, their, their plan. The second problem was, Will the Arab world tolerate such a takeover, especially when it would be when it would transpire that the Zionists had no intention whatsoever to share Palestine with anyone? Um, and for that, they did several things. One is they colluded with Jordan uh, and made sure that the Jordanians, who had the best equipped and trained army in the Arab world, would be neutralized by a pre-war agreement. In the quid for quo was allowing the Jordanians to have what later would become known as the West Bank. Um, and uh, the rest, they, their intelligence and also the British intelligence predicted quite rightly that given the fact that some of the Arab countries are involved still in their own wars of liberation and the nature of some of the Arab regimes would mean that the Arab military contribution that would definitely would occur in order to prevent the Zionist takeover of Palestine and the dispossession of the Palestinians would not be such so powerful as to prevent it. We have to say that the military intervention in the end of the way by the Arab world cost the Zionist community quite a lot. They lost 1% of the community, which is 6,000 people. But despite the fact that this is a heavy loss, uh, uh, the Arab world was unable, given what it decided to dispatch to Palestine, to prevent the takeover of Palestine. And as I said, the Jordanians anyway were totally neutralized uh, in it. And the, and the Egyptian politicians delayed the decision 
to the last moment. And so the Egyptian military, which anyway didn't have much of uh, an experience in the battlefield, uh, was unable even to train properly before the war and was quite easily defeated uh, in the end uh, uh, of the day. So I would say that the fact that the Zionists were allowed to build a state within a state that included military power, a diplomatic service, prepared them very well to the moment that Britain left Palestine. The naivete of the, uh, uh, of the, the Palestinian leaders still believing almost to the last moment that the world would treat Palestine as it treats Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, and would recognize the democratic right for an independent Palestinian state in Palestine, were unable to, to, to make the same preparations and therefore had hardly any military power to defend themselves uh, and were, were unable to recruit the full power of the Arab world to defend them or to convince the international community to use diplomacy to stop the ethnic cleansing. Um, the Arab world did a bit more once the ethnic cleansing began, you know, especially after April 1948, when the Palestinian towns were forcefully de-Arabized by Israel, uh, uh, and the first large waves of refugees uh, arrived in the Arab capitals, the Arab world intensified somewhat its, its efforts to salvage Palestine, but it was too late and too little to save the Palestinians. So as we begin now to end the interview, I'd like to, to end on more of a personal note, maybe. I'm interested in how your research has affected your life as an Israeli historian, really. We know Israel doesn't like to have these historical details that you've said are quite damning uh, to be released into the public. And so I wanted to ask you also, how easy is it to retrieve all this information? How has it been sort of going through all the archives and everything? Well, at first, in the, uh, when we start, people like me started working on the archives, uh, in the late 1970s and 1980s, I think they were quite open, although we, we now realize they only opened 2% of the documents from 1948, even less than 2%. But there was enough in those 2%, uh, as well as in the United Nations documents, to chart the map of the Nakba, kind of mapping the Nakba, uh, even on a micro-historical uh, level, as, as you point out. Um, so in the beginning, it wasn't that difficult. But the, the, the problem is that as historians, you need to return a few times to the archival resources because you understand better things when you talk to people, you do some oral testimonies and so on. And once, we, once I published and people like me published the first finding, the Israelis got alert to the fact that actually what exists in their archives is quite damning. Uh, and undermining the fabrication that they were pretending themselves and others. And they start closing the archives. So a lot of the material that I was able to see in, let's say, 1982, 1983, is not accessible anymore to the historians. I don't know if they destroyed it, if they uh, closed it, uh, I don't know. Uh, so it is very difficult today to, to extract any information from the Israeli archives. It was easier when I started. Um, now, of course, this goes in tandem with, with the other part of your question. Um, to begin with, you are a trusted Israeli historian, so why shouldn't you be able to see the archival material? You also you, you even define yourself maybe even as a Zionist, so there's no suspicion here that this could be a problem. But then some of us, and I'm not the only one, were quite surprised by what we found. And we were quite truthful in what we wrote about what we found. And then we began to be treated as traitors. Uh, so you, 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 you go through, you undergo quite a process in which you are, you are less and less allowed to see the material, but you're, you are more and more convinced that you know what happened. You don't need the material <laughs> to know what happened. You, there was enough in the early material to know what happened. I'm not saying that we are able to cover everything that happened. As you know, Palestinians of that generation did not talk at all of what happened to them, refused to talk. Uh, even when their children and grandchildren were asking them, it was very difficult to create proper oral history projects on Palestine. Now it's much better. 
the Israelis destroyed Palestinian archives, which existed or took them over, so it was difficult. So there are a lot of problems in using proper historical material, but whatever is there is enough to, I think, map quite clearly uh, the events of 1948 as ethnic cleansing. We know nowadays, we know what happened in most villages, not in all the villages. We don't even know all the villages as yet. Uh, it was such a destruction. Uh, and, but we are beginning to, to closely, uh, surely and, 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 and slowly getting to a full mapping of the Nakba in terms of villages, massacres, unfortunately, expulsions, what was there before, where did the people go to? All this is now a project a lot of historians are involved in. And I think this is one of the well-documented uh, crime of this uh, of the last century, of the second half of the last century, still denied by so many people, which is quite surprising, uh, given the fact that it's so well-documented and so clear. Uh, and it didn't happen that many years ago. But um, the struggle against denial is helped not just by archival material, it's a struggle against certain uh, fabrication, indoctrination, and intimidation, as you know. So, yeah, this is uh, where we are at uh, at this particular moment. Well, on that note, I think that's all we have time for today. I'd just like to say thank you again for your time. We, we're really grateful to have been able to to have this time to speak to you, and I hope our listeners have found it as useful and as interesting as we have. Again, for the listeners, I can't recommend Dr. Pape's books enough. They really go into great detail about many of the historical events. And, and I think, honestly, they're really some of the best resources that you can, that you can use to, to learn more about Palestine. With that being said, though, I'd also like to thank you, the listener, uh, again, for making it up to this point. We, we honestly really appreciate every single one of you that's taking, again, the time to, to listen to the Palestinian narrative, really. We'll soon be back with more contemporary Palestine-related content, so keep your appeal and see you soon. Thank you and goodbye.